Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today, my guest is Becky Vollmer, and we are talking about having the courage and taking the steps to get unstuck. Becky is a speaker, a yoga teacher, and the creator of You Are Not Stuck, a movement that empowers people to pursue the lives they most deeply desire. She guides a global community on social media that is several hundred thousand strong, teaches online courses about empowerment and choice, and leads sold-out programs that combine movement, breathwork, self-exploration, and action planning at yoga and wellness centers across the country. We're going to talk all about Becky's background and what brought her here, but this is about moving from being stuck and depressed and sad and not sure what to do and overwhelmed into the next phase of your life. So Becky, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be with you. Yeah, we were just talking that we have a lot of friends and people in common. And in fact, one of my private coaching clients absolutely loves you, has taken your course and was telling me over and over again that I had to have you on the podcast. 
Well, I'm so glad you listened and I'm so glad I'm here. It's really great to talk with you. Yeah. Well, so just to get started, I was reading your book this whole last week. It's fantastic. But tell me about the work you do and what brought you to helping people get unstuck. I'll tell you, I don't have a quick answer for when somebody says, well, what do you do for a living? Because I'm not sure if there is one word or two words that would encapsulate. Well, let's see. I'm sort of a recovering corporate dropout and I'm a yoga student and teacher. And I'm just really somebody who wants just to light a fire under everybody's ass. And (laughs) there's nothing that encapsulates that. So what the work that I do, I would describe the work that I do is trying to teach everybody who would be willing to listen to me about the principles of empowerment and choice. Mm-hmm. Trying to trying to give folks the permission to make some choices in their lives, to live the lives that they want to live rather than the lives that they feel stuck in. Yeah. So yeah. my my journey to that was, you know, from the corporate world through the yoga space, through just writing and talking about these issues and kind of integrating that into yoga teaching on a whim, literally on a whim, like one Saturday afternoon, I was thinking, you know, the people who are on Facebook, who are, who are listening to me uh, talk about empowerment and choice, like they're really only coming here to figure out what time I'm teaching yoga on Tuesday morning. Maybe they don't care about this, you know, this other stuff. How about I strip out all that content and just throw it on a separate Facebook page? And I called it, you are not stuck. And it just, it resonated with people because I think so many of us for so long have felt inexplicably stuck. And so it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And it gave me, it just gave me the chance to talk to more people about my favorite subject. So, and here we are today. I love that. And I was telling you that when I was reading your book, I felt like our backgrounds, not only in working in corporate and drinking too much and deciding to stop and feeling that sort of like, for me, it was just like desperation um, of being stressed out and anxious and unhappy on the Sunday, Sunday night dreads of not wanting to go to work. But you know, our feelings and how we kind of got out of that space were really similar. I describe myself even as my website as a practical dreamer, a retired corporate ladder climber and a recovering people pleaser. And, you know, I think part of the practical dreamer part is my search for security and wanting to change and shift, but wanting to do it in a way that made me comfortable and kind of as you know, when you were talking about getting permission from your friend, and we can talk about that, just I needed permission to almost leave corporate from my husband, you know, because we'd like signed up for this life where I was the breadwinner. And he was a sixth grade teacher. And so I made the money for years and was really, I felt trapped with the mortgage and the health insurance and the kids. And it had been my choice, but at what point are you allowed to change that? Yeah, I I relate to just those questions you're asking yourself so deeply because I can remember feeling so strongly, even though I wasn't happy, 
doing something that at one point had made me very happy. Right. I remember thinking like, ah, you're just, you know, you're, this is what you chose. This is what you signed up for. This is the life you picked. And you're so far down the path. It wouldn't make any sense for you to switch direction right now. You'd have to start over. You'd have to be the low woman on the totem pole. You'd have to prove yourself all over again. And then to what end? You might just end up in exactly the same spot again. And that was a real fear for me. And so when I recognized that a small shift wasn't going to cut it for me, Mm -hmm. I really needed a wholesale change. That was both exhilarating and absolutely terrifying. I mean, like loose in your bowels kind of terrifying, right? Oh, God. I can remember the moment that that I decided that I was going to leave my corporate job, which was really my first, I would say that was my first big experience with getting, you know, quote, unstuck. I've since, I've since realized like that was just, um, you know, that was practice it didn't seem like it at the time, but that was lower stakes practice because I've since had to, you know, do it in my drinking and uh, in the sobriety that's followed. And I had to do it in um, ending a 12 year marriage and then, you know, falling in love all over again and remarrying and blending a family. So I think what I've learned is that we don't just get unstuck once we do it we do it once, we do it again, we do it again. But hopefully over time, we learn enough about how the process works. We learn to recognize our own sense of stuckness before we get too far down the road and making the difficult changes and choices that helps get us out of that rut become, uh, it just becomes a lot easier. But before I went off on that tangent, I can remember the moment where I told my husband that's it. I'm ready. I'm just going to quit with no plan B. And this was after several years of really hand wringing, you know, asking myself all those kinds of questions that you were just talking about, Casey. And, you know, I had, I had played the game of like, how can I maneuver the pieces or how can I shape shift myself to fit better into this? You know, they were only offering me a, a particularly shaped I don't know, whole for lack of a better word. And it was like, you can fit in it or not fit in it. It's up to you. But I really tried to (laughs) morph myself into it. And when I reached the place where I just couldn't anymore, I couldn't reduce my schedule further. I couldn't uh, just take on one client. I couldn't, um, I mean, I was to the point where I was like, oh God, maybe I'll just work for HR or something. Like switch to, I've thought about that. I also had this dream of being like a dentist office receptionist. Like that was this ridiculous dream I had when I was like stressed out and anxious in corporate. I was like, God, every time I go to the dentist, I was like, their their schedules look so manageable. Like, which is silly. I'm not, if you're a dental receptionist, I'm sure it's stressful. But you know how you have, like some people are like, I just want to be a barista. You know? I wanted to be a florist. I wanted to work in a flower shop and just play with flowers all day long and make people happy with the bouquets that I would hand them. <laughs> that sounded a lot more appealing than than um, the shit sandwich I was trying to eat. Yeah. 
When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. Yeah. yeah. So when I when I called him and I was like, hey, it's time, I got to do this. And his response was, um, okay, how about we sit down, we talk about it, we do the math on the expenses. We, you know, put it all in a spreadsheet mm-hmm. and we figure out how we make it work. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. I'll, yeah, we'll do that. I was out of town and, you know, yes, when I come back in a couple of days, we'll do that. And then the longer I sat with it for hours and hours and into the next day and the next, I called him back and I was like, I got to do it now. And he repeated, come on home. We'll talk about it. We'll, you know, we'll whip out the spreadsheet. And I was like, if we've got to make this work on paper, it will never work. There's no way I could pass. How do we replace a six-figure salary? How? How? <laughs> I couldn't come up with the how. I only, I only understood the why of needing to leave, and the specific what that leaving was the action I needed to take. I just couldn't wrap my head around how it was all going to work. And so when I finally was like, I just really need you to hold my hand and jump off this cliff with me and God bless him. He did. And yeah, I I'm so grateful. It's coming up on exact. It'll be 10 years in January since I made that choice. And I, I don't regret, I don't regret it for a minute. I mean, you know, what's interesting. I like when I was in the corporate world, I, my thoughts, and of course I was like drinking a bottle of wine a night at the time. And, you know, my thoughts were on this constant loop. Like, what is wrong with me? Why am I so stressed out? Like, why can't I cope? And then it would go into all the band-aids, right? Like, maybe I should do yoga. Maybe I need a good therapist. Maybe I need a girl's night. I should meditate. I should train for a 10K. I should write this all down. And then I was like, or I could just open another bottle of wine and forget it all. And then I realized, like... I was basically running through my day, right? Drop off kids at daycare, go to work, be stressed out, come home. And look, drinking was not helping me. I removed the alcohol and like 60% of my life got better. The part that didn't get better was it was more obvious what was not working instead of just blaming myself. 
because I thought I was drinking too much. But I was basically running through my day, gritting my teeth, going on hyperdrive, and then coming home in the first chance I got, I would essentially knock myself unconscious with a bottle of wine over my head, like literally try to check out of my life and then do it again. And it's that is a crazy kind of sad way to live when I looked around and was like, why am I so unhappy? Like my life is pretty good. Like I'm financially secure. I have a husband who loves me. I have beautiful kids. I have friends. I have skills. And yet I'm unhappy and angry. Like, what is that? You know? And I don't think I'm alone in that. Like, I feel like that describes like 50% of the women I knew in corporate who were in their mid forties. Oh, I think it's absolutely an epidemic. And I I found myself chuckling when you were describing, you know, the list of things that maybe you should do, you know, maybe I should get a therapist, maybe I should run a race, maybe, maybe (laughs) Maybe guitar lessons, like guitar lessons will fix this. Pilates will fix this, right? (laughs) Well, the irony is that Casey, I was doing all of that. I mean, I'm laughing, thinking back at, um, so even you know, even as I was at the the height of my corporate career for years and years, I had been a yoga teacher on the side. I'd done uh, yoga teacher training back, I don't know, probably eight years before I left corporate. And I even started a, a corporate yoga program at my old uh, agency, which is kind of fun. But I had a therapist. I was running 10 Ks. Mm-hmm. I was meditating and doing breath work. Like I was doing all the things I could think of. And it didn't occur to me that the thing that was absolutely killing any connection with my own intuition, with my own inner wisdom, with my own soul was the fucking gallon of alcohol that I poured on it every chance I got. Right. And interestingly, I actually, I left corporate America um, a full year before I quit drinking. Mm-hmm. And it was because of my experience of uh, in that year between leaving my job and finally having the chance to spend the time with my daughters that I wanted. They were still young. They were five and three when I when I left. I had one who was going into into kindergarten. My other one was still, uh, you know, a little baby. And I had, I had the white picket fence, suburban American dream. Like I got to walk with my girls, walk with them on the sidewalk, a little one on each hand, their little pigtails doing what pigtails do. And we would literally skip up the sidewalk to drop my oldest one off at kindergarten. And then I would take my little one to daycare and then I was free. And all of a sudden I had no responsibilities. I had nobody watching me. I had no deadlines. I had no work product. So I got to do my absolute favorite thing in the world, which was day drinking. Yeah. And I found myself drinking earlier and earlier and earlier. I mean, I was already Uh, And probably for a decade, somebody who drank at least a bottle or two of wine a day, much more on the weekends. And of course, it's not the quantity that matters. It's the it's the motivation behind it. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, but when I realized 
I was day drinking every chance I could. I mean, I'd be taking my kids to the pool in the summertime and I can guarantee you what was in my tumbler was not iced tea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every, every chance I had to be doing anything, I always brought a drink with me. And that made me realize that it wasn't the job that had made me miserable. Yeah. It was my own way of thinking about myself, about myself in situations, about what kind of agency and autonomy I had. It really wasn't about the job. I was so confused all those years trying to blame the external forces. It was really because I didn't know what it meant to make choices for myself, to have boundaries for myself. I mean, alcohol may have been my big addiction, but my first addiction was codependency. And that's probably still the one that I struggle with the most today. What's funny is when you're saying that I'm I'm smiling and nodding and it's because, you know, I also drank a lot and it was definitely a coping mechanism because I, I wasn't ready to do the other work. And I truly believe when you're drinking the way I was drinking, you can't do the work like you're too muddled, you're too craving and withdrawal and thinking about and everything else. You kind of have to get rid of that first. But I remember my husband telling me that I had sort of a daddy complex with every boss I ever had. And by the way, it did not matter if it was a woman or a man. Like it was like, I needed the pat on the head. I needed the gold star from them. And I would work as hard as they would ask me to, which of course, when you have someone who will do that, you just keep giving them more shit. Oh, Casey will work till midnight. And I went to a therapist and she was like, well, you get to set the boundary of when it is too much. And I was like, no, I don't. You know, like, I don't get to set that boundary. It's just how much they pile on me. I need them, you know, just that lack of agency and that fear about it. Um, It was really hard to work through. And, you know, I just realized um, even when, even when I stopped drinking, you know, that was the presenting problem, right? Like that was what made me finally decide to change. And, you know, you got rid of some of the crushing anxiety and the headaches and the hangovers and, you know, all that shit that's a nightmare, the guilt and whatever. But then you're left with the reason that you drank in the first place. And you, you know, the good news is you finally get to deal with it. But that's why I love your book, because that shit is not easy. You know, you talk about like, it's not that you don't have choices. It's that kind of you're scared to make them. You scared know? shitless. Yeah. Scared absolutely Terrified. shitless. We all are. And if that's if there's anything I've learned, it's that we all are. I mean, there is such an undercurrent of fear running through the life of almost every woman I know. Okay. Almost every woman well, I know. It's it's fear and it's also obligation. It's sort of you made your bed and you need and it's a good bed like that's what's the hard part right because everybody's like you know my husband would be like dude i worked at l'oreal he was like are you fucking kidding me you you basically sell makeup and talk about skincare and go get lattes and this is 
crushing your soul. And it was just, <laughs> I mean, now that I look at it, it is ridiculous that I was just barely coping. But I think some of that is just the underlying work that needs to be done around having a choice. I feel like were I to go back to that now, which I have no desire to do, I feel like it, I would be a different person in that role because of like the inner work I've done to this point. Like it wasn't the job. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I honestly couldn't agree with you more. I'm, I'm thinking back to a conversation that I had with my therapist at the time. And I think you'll appreciate this. In the environment that I worked in, we, um, we had to track our time and you know bill it out to clients and so we tracked it in 15 minute increments and oh my god if there's anything that will screw with your head it is tracking your life in 15 minute increments like i don't know how attorneys who bill in 6 minute increments i, can I was possibly- about to say attorney i mean that is that is terrible <laughs> I remember one standing in line at the dry cleaners and, you know, waiting for my turn to step up to the counter to pick up whatever I was picking up and just like tapping my foot and thinking, you know, I bill at $350 an hour. Do you have any idea how much this is costing? It's like, oh God, it's all so artificial, right? The construct is artificial. And of course my time's not worth $350 an hour as, you know, as, as whatever I was at that time. But in talking with my therapist, I was lamenting the fact that, you know, at the agency where I worked, we had um, a minimum number of hours that we were expected to record every week. Now, not all of those hours were billed out to the clients. Um, most of them were. But the more senior you got, um, the less time was actually billable because you had more you know, supervisory roles or administrative roles or um, pro bono clients, you, you name it. Anyway, at that time in my career, I, I want to say something like 85% of my 50 hours a week was supposed to be billable, which is a really high bar. And so, of course, what you would do is you just have to work more hours in the week to make sure you were hitting your billable targets. And um, but you didn't want to record all of those numbers necessarily because that would skew uh, a, a measurement called utilization. The clock started over every Monday morning. Mm-hmm. So you worked you worked your fifty hours the previous week, minimum fifty certain percentage of those billable. And then every Monday morning, the clock started over at zero. And as I was talking about that and, you know, some other things that were really just, you know, I just felt like they were weighing so heavy on me. My therapist gave me the homework and this is, oh my gosh, this has to be, this has to be close to 20 years ago. She's like, okay, so your assignment this week is I want you to fail at something. I was like, what? what? What do you mean? Like, I don't fail at anything. I was a straight A kid. I was an overachiever. I skipped first grade. I mean, I don't fail at anything. I excel at everything. She's like, yeah, I want you to, I want you to fail. Pick something, you know, maybe of fairly small consequences and fail. Mm-hmm. And so I really had to rack my brain to think like, okay, what could I do that would have relatively uh, riskless uh, consequences? And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave my time short. 
on that week, I only logged 48.75 hours rather than the badass. I mean, right. I mean, rebel, right. Rebel with a capital R. And I, you know, as soon as I hit like submit on my electronic time entry, oh my God, I was terrified. (laughs) And I'm thinking like, I was going to walk in Monday morning to just this horrible lashing, either like a literal lashing or a tongue lashing or something. But I was pretty terrified that there was going to be a great repercussion to that. And you know what? Nobody said a word. (laughs) Nobody said a word. Yeah. And I was like, wait, are you telling me that all of that fear that I had around that was somehow um, kind of in my, in my mind? What? (laughs) This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy. But one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash someday. And that was a real lesson about that. Sometimes the things that I'm afraid of, the things that we're all afraid of, um, we really make those monsters much bigger in our heads than they are in reality. Yeah. I think that's so true. And I think it doesn't matter particularly what the job itself is, because I've talked to stay-at-home moms who feel that way, that they're not doing enough for their kids, that they have to volunteer for X or do Y or, you know, all these Pinterest expectations in their head. I remember, say, so my best friend, I I worked at one corporate job. I live in Seattle, right? So she worked at Amazon which is a notoriously brutal um, workplace. And she worked at Kindle during the days it was launching. Like Kindle, you know, it was the biggest initiative at the company. And yet every time I saw her, she was pretty zen. She was pretty like, oh yeah, I left at six. I'm doing this cooking class, whatever. I mean, she's my idol. But I was saying to my husband, I was like, maybe I need to go work at Kindle. Maybe that's the answer. Abby seems pretty relaxed. And he was like, babe, it's not the job. It's you. <laughs> I was just like, oh, my God. But I mean, in the book, you cited some numbers that are, I completely believe are true and yet are really alarming. And I do think it's a lot of that inner work. But you said that two thirds of Americans feel stuck in a rut that a third confessed to not having the confidence and the motivation to take a big risk. And that 
only three out of 10 Americans were happy in this assessment, in this study, that people are just feeling sad, depressed, overwhelmed. And this is the one that that I felt, which is amazing, right? You were a straight A girl. You didn't you didn't fail at anything, and yet we feel helpless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so some of the numbers that you cited there some some of those are from some research that I did back in 2015. Some uh-huh. are taken from some other sources. Yeah, the the research that I did in 2015 it was about a year and a half after I left, and I, I want to tell you why I did the research, and then dive in a little bit more into the numbers. So many people would come up to me and they were like, oh my God, you were so brave. You were so brave to quit your job. I wish I could do that. I, you know, I just, I don't have the guts to do that, but you, you're so awesome. And I'm like, wait a minute. I was not awesome. I was not brave. Yeah. I was backed into a corner. I was miserable. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I couldn't leave the house to go to work without like stopping at the freezer and and shoveling a bunch of Ben and Jerry's in my mouth. I couldn't come home without downing a bottle or two of wine. I mean, I, I remember this, like your body was physically rebelling against. Oh God. I had a panic attack one day as I was walking from my office to a client's office. And I, I had never had anything like this happen to me before. I was standing at the street corner waiting for the stoplight to change so that I could cross the street. And as soon as, you know, the little little walk sign lights up and I go to, you know, take a step forward and my body did not move. Literally, my body did not move. And I'm willing it. I'm saying, come on, legs, let's go. What the fuck? And they're like, no, no, we're not moving my entire body was frozen on that street corner. Mm -hmm. And I remember kind of looking back at my office and I looked forward at a client's office and I'm trying to just jumpstart something. And I couldn't, I literally couldn't turn left, couldn't turn right. And so I, I ended up calling a friend in the office and I'm sobbing. I mean, I'm just sobbing cars are zooming by and I'm just standing there sobbing and she came and she got me and, uh, you know, she took me into this bank lobby where it was warm and she just put her arm around me and let me cry until I could catch my breath. Mm -hmm. And so when people were coming to me saying, you're so brave. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I was the girl having a panic attack on the street corner who then stayed for another seven or eight years. Right. So I, there was nothing brave about what I did. I just reached my limit. Mm -hmm. And so it really got me thinking about why do we, why do we stay in situations that, I mean, they're practically killing us and it seems like we could just as easily make a different choice. And so the the survey that I put out in the field, several hundred people respond. I want to say six hundred or so people, and I wanted to get at um, how people felt about being stuck, and then what they did or didn't do about those feelings. And the the most compelling finding for me out of all of that were the numbers around how people described 
feeling like they, they needed to change versus being ready to change versus finally being empowered to change. I mean, six out of 10 people said, I'm, I know something big needs to change more than four out of 10 said, yep, I'm ready. But it was only 14% Casey that said they felt empowered to change. Yeah. And so that to me, that's what I call, I call that the empowerment gap. It's like, it's this idea that we are not authorized to prioritize ourselves. It's like, it's this felt sense in your body of being totally illegitimate in your own life. Like you feel like you are unsanctioned to take charge. But I mean, my question is who better to sanction your own life than you? Well, and it's that idea of like cultural expectations and sunk costs. And, you know, I feel like the way we drink, it's really a very maladaptive coping mechanism to feeling helpless and stuck and trying to give yourself some reward for literally getting through your day. I mean, I was, I was not, um, it took me a lot. I call myself a practical dreamer because I have this real need for security. Um, I'm sure based on my childhood as everything is right. But my husband had been telling me forever. He was like, you should, you should go out on your own. You should be a consultant. You should be X, Y, Z. And just that fear of doing that was so scary to me. And then, um, you know, and I would tell him the day after Thanksgiving, you know, Black Friday, I was in e-commerce, like, I don't want to do this in five years. Like, I don't want to do this next year. I don't fucking want to go into the office on Monday. And yet I would not leave. And my therapist finally said, I think you should be a coach, you know, a sober coach. And I was just like, no, no one, no one can make money being a sober coach. It's not a thing, you know everyone's a sober coach, which she was like, I've never heard of such a thing. And she was just like, no, you should, this is what you should do. Good therapists always have a waiting list, good coaches. But you know, she's like, I know 10 women today who would need this, right? Because they drink too much. They work at Microsoft, they work at Amazon. They come in for 50 minutes a week and yet are struggling with their drinking and everything else. And so It was her permission, not my husband's, not myself. It was her telling me that I should do this, that finally gave me the permission to do it. And looking back, yeah, why could I have not done that for myself? You know, I think it's because in some ways, well, it goes back to fear, right? It goes back to sunk costs. It goes back to this idea that Normal is anything you're used to. And I wish I could take credit for that phrase. It's if you're familiar with the book, Emotional Sobriety, I'm reaching over and grabbing it Uh off my bookshelf right now. Who wrote that if people don't know that one? This is Emotional Sobriety by Tian Dayton, D-A-Y-T-O-N. This might be one of the most powerful books I've ever read. Yeah, I want to put it in the show notes. Yes, please do. So one of the things that she says is normal is anything you're used to. Yeah. And, you know, of course she's not saying normal is anything that's, you know, right or good or normal is the way it should be. Normal is just what we're used to. And then it becomes really difficult to look outside of the walls of what, what has become normal to us. 
but your story about your your therapist suggesting you pursue a, a coaching business reminds me of a conversation that I was having with a woman at a retreat just a couple of weeks ago. She was talking about, you know, here she is, she works in this one field and she, and then her background is in this other field. So she's got current uh, situation is medicine background is in government. And she's thinking she's, she's left, she's left both of them, right? She's now free to pursue whatever she wants. And she's like, I just don't really know where I could fit in, you know, what kind of an environment will allow me to bring together these two skill sets. And I'm thinking, well, why is your thinking limited to existing infrastructure that you could plug into? And what about the idea of building your own scaffolding to stand on, creating something brand new out of whole cloth. I mean, there is no way if you had, if you had told me when I left public relations 10 years ago, Hey, in 10 years, you're going to be a, uh, you're going to be like an empowerment speaker who also talks about sobriety and, uh, you really weave in a bunch of yoga philosophy and, you wrote a book about it. I would be like, you're high. Yeah. You know, yeah. I never could have, I never could have um, put myself in that situation because that's not a job that existed 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It was something that just organically was created through the power of my own choices, following my soul, following that wisdom, following that intuition, and kind of letting my skill set determine what was going to be next, as opposed to letting a box that somebody else wanted to put me in determine what skills I was going to utilize. Well, and especially for pretty driven women who are high achieving, like we want to know what the outcome is. We want to know what goal we're going for. And the idea of just taking a step without a net, despite being able to achieve everything we've ever been able to achieve, mm-hmm. that's terrifying because we almost want to guarantee, you know, in a career, you're like, I do X, Y, Z. I become a manager, director, VP. I, I get the title. I get the ego. I get whatever. So the idea of just taking a blind step is terrifying. But when you were talking, one of my favorite quotes, I'm a big vision board girl, and I've got them all over the house, literally. But it's a quote by Howard Thurman. And it says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I mean, not people who are gritting their teeth trying to get through it each day without a panic attack. Oh, my God. I mean, when life feels like it's just a constant wedgie, that is not living. Yeah. You know, we're we're here for more than that. But what it makes me think of, you know, you mentioned taking a, a blind step. There's a quote that I include uh, in my book, since we're trading quotes. It's E.L. Doctorow. <laughs> and it's the idea that you know, you don't, um, you know, you can, you can drive, you only have to be able to see as far as your headlights 
will go. You can't see the whole journey, but you can make the whole journey that way, just seeing what's right in front of you. And that to me takes me back to the importance of choices. Yeah. To me, everything we do is all about choices. You know, we talk about fear and how fear really holds us back, but the opposite of fear isn't just courage. The opposite of fear is choice. Mm-hmm. But the magic part of choices is learning to be able to make them not from this place of our, you know, our ego, our brain, our acquired personality, our conditioning, yeah. right? We don't want to make uh we don't want to make ego guided choices. We want to drop down into something deeper and make soul guided choices. But I think the trouble is so few of us, we're all pretty acquainted with our ego. Yeah. I wish more of us were more deeply acquainted with our soul. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. So in your book and in your work, you take people through the process of doing that. Because like you said, most of us have no idea how to even look inward. And a lot of times people are like, you know, there's also this guilt around like first world problems. My life is pretty good. Isn't this very self-involved navel gazing to expect more? Like, isn't, I should be happy. This is good enough. Yeah. But you also talk about one of my favorite phrases, which is not this, like mm-hmm. taking the time to get brutally honest about what we're unhappy with, regardless of whether we think that is valid or whether we should be happy with it. So can you take us through some of those steps that you work with people on? Yeah. You know, not this. We obviously have to give credit um, where credit is due. And here we just bow to the, you know, the great Elizabeth Gilbert, the patron saint of brave women everywhere. Um, If anybody who's listening to this podcast has not read Liz Gilbert's 2016 essay called Not This, um, press pause now. (laughs) 
I will link to it in the show notes. So we have all the good links so people can find them and won't have to stop driving to remember. Okay. Okay. Very good. You know, she talks about, um, you know, if you, if you won't take the time to uh, listen to that deep life force within you, that's saying not this and the, the one that won't be silenced, um, you could end up stuck in this place of not this for a very long time. And, you know, for me, there's another, there's another phrase that I come back to a lot around the idea of not this. And you hit the nail on the head, Casey, when you were talking about um, what we think we should be happy with, right? There is, there is uh, the psychology of should, but there is the psychology of want. And when those two things um, are, are at odds with one another, we get like this real sense of indigestion, right? I blame this on, it's like the curse of what I call other people's opinions and other people capitalized, right? Yeah. When you reach that place where you're just like absolutely up to here, right? It's like right at your throat. You're up to here with other people's opinions. Like you realize I I just can't swallow one more of these or I'm going to lose my freaking mind. That's when I think we have two choices. Like we can keep swallowing other people's opinions or we can spit that shit out and decide to honor the wisdom and the intuition of our own soul. And and I think the first place we have to start is looking at our own values. And, you know, everybody thinks, oh God, values, here we go again. But I mean, be honest, when was the last time um, you may have sat down and thought about the evolution of your values? Because here's where it starts. When, if you go back to your family of origin, we are born into that set of values, right? Yeah. Our parents, yeah. uh, which of course is informed by their whole lifetime, right? So their they've got uh-huh. <laughs> so they've got a set of values that we are born into. And okay, so then we go off to school and maybe our school has some values. Maybe it's a religious school or you know a public school, but usually a, a, any sort of institution is going to be built around some set of values that is worked into our psyche over time. Then let's say uh, you move into the, into the work world. Again, that's an institution that's going to be built around some set of values, some culture, right? Which may or may not necessarily be yours, but uh, you're probably going to live it. (laughs) Then maybe let's say you uh, pair off with somebody, you partner off with somebody. Now you've got another individual yeah, who has a set of values that go all the way back to their family of origin, right? And all this time, you or you know I, I have just been adopting everybody else's values, and it wasn't until I stopped and realized, first of all, your values may not be mine. Mm-hmm. I may have somehow adopted different ones or outgrown those or replaced some. But until I really sat down and kind of asked myself, what do I stand for? Yeah. What is my North star? What do I, 
you know, what do I really believe in? And when I allowed myself the grace to understand that my values, that it was okay, that they were going to evolve over time, yeah, just as I had. And so that's when I understood like, oh, it's this sense of constant gardening, right? We don't just plant a garden once and think, okay, there's my garden for forever, right? We've got to water, we've got to fertilize, we've got a deadhead, we've got to pull the weeds. Um, when seasons change, you know, maybe we plant something else or maybe we have annuals, maybe we have perennials. The point is it's never just one and done. One and done. Yeah. We have to get into that habit of asking more regularly, tending to more regularly. So once we understand how our values have evolved over time, then the next bit of work for me is to evaluate that, like plot that against the way we live out our values. So if you think of values as your North Star, priorities then are how we bring our values to life. And, you know, priorities just by their very definition, it's it's what takes precedence over something else. And so I can talk about values, but if I'm not bringing them to life with the way I spend you know, my energy, my time, my attention, my money, um, then I, then that's just, that's empty talk. Right. So for example, I can talk, I can say that I value my sobriety, but unless I'm out there prioritizing, um, self-reflection, uh, you know, if I'm a, a 12 stepper, you know, working the steps, getting to meetings, um, working on my resentments, working on all of the other aspects of emotional sobriety. If I'm not prioritizing those activities, then I'm just talking sobriety. I'm not actually living sobriety. <laughs> so I find there's, I when I take people through the exercise of values and priorities, um, there's often a really big gap between the way people realize that they are prioritizing their time, their money, their yeah. attention, Versus how they would prioritize it if they were actually living in accordance with their values. You know, what's interesting when you said that one of the clearest moments that I had of what I valued versus the choice I had to make was I was working and I'd been to coaching school. So I had done some values reflection work. It, of course, was part of it. And I was at least aware that you know, you talk about writing your obituary and I want to talk about that. But I knew that, you know, what I wanted in life at the end of my life was not for them to say she was a VP or a GM at L'Oreal. Like I could give a shit, right? I wanted them to say she had a really strong marriage and she had kids who, you know, went to college and wanted to come back and sit around the kitchen table and tell her all her stories. And I wanted to take my daughter to the bus stop in the morning. And I wanted to travel the world. Basically, I wanted to be happy, like in my mind, what happiness is. And my boss, what she wanted from me was to work on nights. So she was very ambitious, not married, not kids, really wanted to move up the ladder, like had a very clear goal. So her goal for me was to work nights and weekends to present to the higher ups to you know, I remember I told them I didn't really want to travel that much, like in my marriage, in my life, in my sobriety, too. 
me being in a hotel room in New York, away from my morning workout group, away from my kids, my husband, my schedule, um, was not good for me going to drinking dinners every night, right? This was not the life that was good for me. And then they said to me, like, okay, is 25%? I mean, this is them looking down on me, like, Jesus Christ, is 25% too much travel for you? And I was like, yeah, that's a week of every month, me in a hotel room at drinking dinners, big presentations that give me anxiety with people I don't know. And I was like, yeah, that's too much. And so what helped me there was not only realizing that my priorities needed to reflect what I wanted in life, but I looked at my boss and I looked at my boss's boss, both women, one didn't have kids, one did. And I asked myself, do I want what they have? Their life, their time, their energy, their priorities, how much time they spend at home. And if the answer is no, then I by definition have to disappoint them. They have to not approve of what I do. And for a people pleaser, oh my God, that's terrifying. You know? Yeah, I do know. I do know that. What I also know is that people will recover from being yes. disappointed by you. But when when we ignore the voice of our soul, like that's an abandonment from which we may never bounce back. So I would, in the old days, right? A, a decade ago, two decades ago, ago, I would have disappointed myself a million times over to uh, prevent disappointing anybody else. Like I couldn't live with that. Um, Now I'll choose me almost every time and not in a selfish way, in an aligned way. Mm -hmm. I should say it's become much easier. The more I get to know myself, the easier it's become for me to say no to the things I want to say no to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's funny, like, uh, several years ago when my, you know, my youngest daughter was probably in second or third grade. And one of the other moms in her class said, um, we need somebody else on the committee on the parade float building committee. It's like just once a week on Tuesday nights and we drink a lot of wine. Why don't you come and join us? And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I would rather stick my head in the oven and just slam the door a bunch of times <laughs> before I'm going to go one work on a parade float. Two, spend my precious Tuesday night with a bunch of people that I really don't know when I'd much rather be allocating, you know, spending that time in accordance with my priorities and my values uh, and be with my family. And three, no, I'm not going to put myself in a position of hanging out while everybody else is drinking. Yeah. The reality is they would never even miss me. Yeah. They would never even know that I wasn't there. But if I had gone, I would have been miserable. Yes. So that's an easy choice in favor of me, yeah. me and my priorities and my values. So me and my sobriety, me and my family, me protecting what precious time I have. Yeah. But you have to figure out what your values are first. Otherwise, right. your values become anything that's important to someone else. That's right. And you know, the, you know, the old Ian Thomas quote about, you know, life is going to like grab you by the hand and say, this is important. No, this is important. And if you're not clear on what's important to you 
at this point in time, you're going to be, you're not going to have anything left for yourself. But I really do believe that it's this idea of this point in time Mm -hmm. that is, I think we need to give that a little more attention than we may normally, because I don't think we give ourselves the permission to change. Yeah. We don't give ourselves the permission to evolve. Yeah. And reprioritize. Well, and sometimes that's scary, right? I mean, I talk to women all the time who want to stop drinking because they're not this is I can't wake up one more day with this feeling so sick or self-loathing or quitting on myself or whatever it is. And yet some of those, you know, sunk costs or I signed up for this is their partner is their drinking buddy. And maybe they don't want them to stop or they're scared of changing. They're scared of evolving because they don't know what that is. Right. Well, I think the underlying question, you know, what's underneath everything you just said is the question of identity. It's the question of who am I? Not just who am I without alcohol? Like that was one I really had to, I had to struggle to answer that because I didn't know who I was without alcohol. You know, when I was getting divorced, it's like, well, who am I if I'm not so-and-so's spouse? Yeah. Or when I was leaving my job, who am I if I'm not, you know, Becky in the killer four-inch heels and great suits and great bags with, you know, the coiffed hair who, you know, just walks into a room and people think like, oh, she's going to solve the problem. Who am I if I take a back seat and say... I don't care about solving the problem anymore. Yeah. What, who am I? If I say, you know what? All of this is the problem. You know, what and cracked so- me up when I read that in your book, I already was like, oh shit, I suck because I've never been able to wear high heels in my life. And I'm also, <laughs> short. I'm five, three. I twisted my ankles like seven times playing field hockey and lacrosse and rugby. So like high heels just don't work for me. And I'm like, damn, she could wear high heels. What the fuck is wrong with you know what's funny though? People uh, people would be like, "Oh, you know, why are you always wearing heels?" I'm like, "Because flats are so lame. Flats are like the minivan of shoes." You know what I drive? Happily. No, you don't drive a minivan. Hell yes, I do, girl. Hell okay, yes, I, I still do. have stigma against me. <laughs> Like somehow SUVs are okay, but I'm pretty sure, I mean, I'm joking. I did not have a third child just because I desperately didn't want to drive a minivan. Casey, my minivan has so many magic buttons. I I mean, they slide open on the sides. I used to think they were so lame and so dorky. And now like, I don't think there's anything sexier than my minivan because you know what? It has... It's reflective of who I am Your values. now. Yeah. I yeah. have evolved, man. And yeah. so, God, did you ever think that a minivan would be the symbol of evolution? But it's, I mean, like right here. I, I'm I still at the point, like I, I need to get a new car and I want like an electric Jeep, which is ridiculous because I do not go off-road like a Jeep Wrangler or Rubicon. <laughs> I've only been looking at this recently because I'm like, I want to be young. I want to be fun but I will I can get that way different I might buy it because fuck it but you know you can be young and fun in a minivan uh, just saying 
All right. I'm not ready to go there with my identity, but maybe if I do some more work with you, I'll think about it. I don't need Maybe it. that's the title of my, my second book. My son's 14. He's going to be driving soon. I don't need a minivan, so I don't need to go there, but I'm with well, you. Well, just wait for this. My daughter just turned, my oldest just turned 15. She might be inheriting my minivan. No. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, my I first car was a 1978 Chevy Impala station wagon. Oh my God. It was like this puke brown, like baby shit brown color. It was awful. But my daughter might have a minivan. Talk about doing better than the generation before. She might have a car with magic doors at the press of a button. What a lucky girl. All right. Clearly, I still have stigma from my youth, but I... (laughs) You're not going to get me on the minivan, but I'm going with everything else. All right. So identity. Is that where we started? I forget. <laughs> How did we get on cars? Yeah. Well, you know what? That's a that's a really great example. I know we didn't start here, but identity in cars. Really, the question that is, you know, the question that's underneath your stigma is what will other people think? Yes. Right. Um, Brene Brown said this so perfectly. You can never do anything brave if you're wearing the straight jacket of what will other people think? Yeah. 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 It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Yeah. You do you, whatever that is. You live your values. You prioritize you. And if somebody else either has an opinion or uh, a a judgment or anything like you just bless them on their journey and keep moving on because it's it's not about what anybody else thinks. There's low stakes and high stakes, right? In between that, because, you know, you talked about how normal is anything you're used to. And in your book, you kind of go into how things that at one point would be non-negotiable or unacceptable over time, there's this gradual creeping into what you will tolerate. And a lot of women I talk to, I mean, you know, you said this in your book, like the things I hear about most, yes, are drinking, right? That's sort of the presenting problem that they need to change. Underneath that, It's marriage or relationships or their jobs or their habits or their loneliness or sadness, right? And some things, obviously, we've talked about work and income and identity and what you signed up for and all that. But like, what about if your marriage is just kind of okay, somewhat shitty, you're not that happy, but you have kids like that's a high stakes people will be disappointed in me, right? That's hard. It's incredibly hard. I mean, having, having been in a place like that, um, you know, in a decision space like that, um, you know, when I made the decision to leave my marriage, um, it wasn't quite, you know, oh, it's, it's, fine, but it's not, you know, it's not mind blowing. I mean, it, I had a marriage that looked very good from the outside. And what people didn't see was that, um, you know, on the inside, my husband had 
kind of dropped a bomb that I didn't see coming, which was, you know, I, I just don't love you. And I haven't for quite some time. I mean, that takes the breath out of your body. Yeah. And that for him, that's a huge, not this, that, you know, he could have just said, I don't have a choice in the matter. That's I right. Up for this, but for that's me, right. You, right. That's terrifying. Yeah. And, you know, in the same way that I would never want to stay in a marriage where I'm not loved, I wouldn't want somebody else to stay stuck in a marriage where they don't love the person they're married to. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I would say we gave it our best go. We put in about 18 months of hard work, of hard marriage therapy work to try to be able to rebuild. But, you know, in the end, it was just something we couldn't rebuild from. And so the question was, I mean, there were a lot of questions, but, you know, one of the questions was, well, do I stay in something that looks good on the outside, but on the inside where I see it um, is completely empty. Like it's a, it's a shell. And you know, at that time, my daughters were, um, they were probably eight and six. And I couldn't go a minute without asking, how will my choice affect them? You know, my parents divorced when I was a young teenager. And so I knew what it was like to go up, to grow up in a divorced family. And you know, there were parts of that that I desperately didn't want for my children. But at the end of all of the considerations, you know, when my ex-husband and I were able to look at each other and be like, hey, we really tried. Yeah. Are you ready to call it quits? And we could both give it a full body. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, yes, excellent. Let's get out of here. We're done with this bullshit. I mean, it was a really hard, you know, yeah, we gave it our best. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's a better choice for us to make to make the decision to to start fresh apart in order to give our kids. Yeah. um, We wanted to give them examples of what love looked like. We didn't want to give them the example that, uh, you know, you stay because you you said you would. We wanted to be able to show them that it is okay to evolve and to grow and change your mind, even if it means, you know, that somebody, you hurt somebody's feelings. Yeah. And so when I talk with my kids now about that and about that decision, I'm very uh, deliberate about reminding them, you know, guys, it's okay to change direction. Like no matter how long you've been walking down one path, if you really do some soul searching and you determine continuing in this direction is making me really, really unhappy, you have my full blessing to make a different choice. Well, and some of that is like, you don't have to look at that as a mistake, right? That gave you information that helped you evolve. That learning is part of it, you know? And it's all learning. It's like a clue that, 
okay, this part I liked and this part I didn't because so many people are like, I wish I had never done that or why did I make that choice or now I've made my bed and I need to lie in it. And, you know, like you said, you're allowed to evolve. You have permission to change. You actually should change as you grow. And a lot of times it takes the courage and you talk about this to disrupt the status quo. I mean, the line I pulled out from your book that I kind of put in all caps was you're not stuck, you're scared. And a lot of times we say we're just stuck because that's easier. Then we don't have to make big decisions that are scary. Right. And it's the decisions that it, that's what it all comes down to. It's like, we all have choices. We just have to be brave enough to make them. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say, you know, we, that's not a, a, a blank check to go about making selfish, uh, indiscriminate <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not encouraging anybody to just, you know, go out and do whatever the fuck you want, regardless of the consequences, um, you know, and how other people might be affected. I'm not, I am not encouraging anyone to be selfish, but when we make choices from our soul, like that doesn't make us full. It doesn't make us full of ourselves. It makes us filled with ourself, self with a capital S, right? So there's our self with a lowercase s. That's the ego. That's the conditioning. That's the acquired personality. Self with a capital S, I mean, sister, that is the part within you Mm -hmm. that is, that's your stardust. That's your divinity. That is the part of you and I know, you know, people sometimes will roll their eyes when I say this, but that is the part of you that is God. Mm -hmm. There is no part of any divine being, any higher power, any, you know, source or the universe that would want you crying in your honey nut Cheerios because you're so miserable and you feel like you don't have a way out. Mm-hmm. what the universe, what source wants for each one of us is to recognize that we're made of magic. We're not here to work and pay taxes and be miserable until we die. We are here to find fulfillment, to be creative, to let our, I mean, it's like the idea of like, it's time to let the unicorn off the leash, man. Live. Live. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Someone said to me once, which I loved. Um, she said, you're a unicorn and unicorns attract other unicorns. And I don't know why like that just made me so happy because um, when I was early in the days of getting sober. And I was actually in Holly Whitaker's hip sobriety group at one point when I was like two to three months sober. For some reason, it became this thing where you were going to an event and you were the only one not drinking. And they were like, 
you're a fucking rainbow badass unicorn. Like, so we would all give each other rainbow unicorns. So it just cracked me up when you said, um, it's time to let the unicorn off the leash. Yeah. And isn't it interesting when you let, like, when you finally decide, you know what, I'm going to let this unicorn kind of peek out, right? I'm going to let her, I'm going to give her some more leash. You realize how many other unicorns there are out there in in a good way, right? And you do start to concentrate in the best way. Like when you, when we start to talk about these things, Mm -hmm. honestly, without any shame, without any fear, like it is what it is. Here's who I am. Here's how I've screwed up. And here's how I'm doing different. And we start to just be honest about the narrative of what's been, what is right now, what we hope for tomorrow. And we begin to meet these other souls who are all going through like the same kind of metamorphosis, whether it's sober people Mm -hmm. or, you know, people who are seeking uh, through philosophy or spirituality or um, in in religion or in psychotherapy, like you name it. When seekers find other seekers, magic really happens. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. All right. Well, I know people are going to want to follow up with you. They're going to want to find you. So what is the best way for people to, you know, learn more about you, the work you do, the courses you have, your book? Um, best way is probably website, which is you are not stuck.com. Pretty much you are not stuck is the way you could connect with me anywhere. Uh, it's my handle on Instagram. It's the name of uh, my Facebook page. You are not stuck. It's also going to the website is the best way you can learn about, uh, I have an, an online course called resolution. It's a self-paced downloadable, uh, course that you can take. It's one that I, I, for years and years, I've taught online in small group settings uh, and, you know, finally realized not everybody can make a live call Tuesdays yeah. at, at 2 p.m. Eastern. So this is a way to uh, make it available to more and more folks who can do it as they can. Um, and for anybody who's looking for kind of that real life connection, there are two ways. One is that I do workshops and retreats all across the country at, you know, some big yoga based centers. Um, so if you're ever looking to spend a long weekend somewhere, I would love for you to join me. All that's on the website. And then the more accessible version is a weekly zoom call that I host. It's every Wednesdays at noon Eastern. It's called the circle. It's a lovely gathering of people from around the world and it's literally conversations like this for one hour. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's fuel. It really is. It's its community and it's fuel and it's insight and it's humor. And it's a place to be seen and held and share. So everybody is welcome in the circle. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I've loved this conversation. I've loved it. Thank you for having me. And I can't wait to keep talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. 
And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.